The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Hi, Carol. It's season seven. We're glad to be back. It's so good to be back. It is. How are you? I'm doing great. All the better for getting to sit here and talk with you. I feel the same. And with our friend Robert looming over us. He's waving. You all saw him out there. Thank you to all of you who are patiently waiting for our debut. We've got a little bit of a late start. Yeah, (laughs) We're jumping right in with our first opera preview of the season. And this is the preview for Wagner's Die Fliegende Holländer. The Flying Dutchman, yeah. So... Carol, let's let's start by talking a little bit about the world into which Wagner became Wagner. How this whole idea of German romanticism and what it was coming from and what it would be. Talk a little bit about what he inherited and what he sort of took on as his mantle. Well, I um, the division is probably not as black and white as I like to make it, but I kind of imagine the big movement before this being the Age of Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Everything's manicured, everything's organized, gardens are pretty, and they're topiaried within an inch of their lives. Right. And then uh, we have a reaction to that the, that order where artists, writers, philosophers want to delve back into the wildness of nature. And this is kind of the world that uh, developed at the early part of the 19th century. So we had the poetry of Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. We had um, Henrik Heine, who just capitalized on nature and the passions of nature governing humans rather than reason. And so it's definitely a pendulum swing from this time of enlightenment, the thoughtfulness of uh, all the revolutionary times, all of that. Was Wagner the first person to explore this musically or were there others? No, he's actually kind of the person who I think brought it all together. He was maybe the culmination of this. But uh, the first person to really be identified with German romanticism, particularly in opera, is um, Karl Maria von Weber. Mm -hmm. And his opera Der Freischutz is the one that is uh, generally uh, credited as the first big German romantic opera. It's an opera about uh, peasants. It's called The Free Shooter, which is so it's a marksman who has to win a a shooting prize to be able, I mean, the prize for the shooting contest is the hand of the woman he loves. It's Max, who is uh, in love with Agatha. And uh, he's not having great luck with this shooting. So his um, friend, quote unquote, who turns out to be a bad guy, Mm -hmm. encourages him to um, seek supernatural aid. And so they call upon kind of the minions of hell to help him be a better shooter for the purposes of this. So we have uh, nature throughout. Uh, There's this great scene called the Wolf's Glen scene where they are casting these magic bullets with the aid of a satanic figure. And it's wildly stormy. There's evil spirits about supernaturals everywhere, even the subret role. Enshin, which just means, you know, Anita, little Anna, it has a super, she has a, 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 a ghost story that she tells at one point. So ghosts, um, wildness, passion, all of these things are kind of, uh, I always imagine these dark sort of, um, these forests where the brush has not been cleared. So it's easy to get lost. It's like a Hansel and Gretel forest. That's yeah. Hansel and Gretel and the Grimm brothers. They're also part of that German romantic Aesthetic that became so prevalent. What's happening 
to the music at this time? Is it becoming more through composed, less number opera? Is the is the music starting to become almost a character? Is it carrying some storytelling weight in and of itself? Or was that something Wagner really brought in on his own? No, Freshets is definitely one that has the orchestra carrying part of the storytelling. And I think of another opera called Oberon, which mm-hmm. is about Oberon, also the king of the Weber. fairies, yeah. right, by yeah. Weber. And there's a big uh, aria of the soprano called Ozean du Ungeheuer, Ocean, you um, cursed one. And <laughs> you hear the the the, the, sto- the stormy waves of the ocean in that aria. And so the orchestra is helping to paint that picture. We still have numbers operas in the early German romantics. Right. Wagner even has in his early operas, numbers, where we actually do have stops, but the numbers are getting blurred. Yeah. Just as they were blurring almost simultaneously in Verdi. So Wagner spanned the 19th century. He was born in 1813, died in 1883. Am I correct in yes, those Yes, 1883, yep. yep. And so he spanned, just as Verdi did, he spanned the, eight, the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Verdi and Wagner are very different composers, but yeah. they were both um, exploring ways to continue the drama yeah. to to expand the limits past these numbers operas. Wagner just was going a very different direction. And he got very philosophical with it all. He wrote a lot of philosophical tomes. He was a, a thinker. I mean, it's, he's a hard one to talk about because he's also a terrible human being. He's a very problematic person. There's no <laughs> yes. question. And we, you know, we've talked on this podcast before when we've discussed Brahms about the whole war of the romantics and how, mm-hmm. you know, the conservatives and the progressives and the different ways they wanted to take music. And I use those words very differently than the way we use them today to talk about our current political landscape. But there was a time when music was being really pulled in two very different directions. It might seem like one backward and one forward, but it was really more three-dimensional than that. Yeah, you had the Wagnerites and then the people that didn't like Wagner, the musical people that Mm -hmm. didn't like Wagner Mm -hmm. were just leaving his personality out of this discussion for now. Uh, They were adamantly against the things that Wagner was aiming for. Yeah. So, and then this bled over into other, you know, French composers identified as one stream or the other along the way, his contemporaries and people that followed. He was incredibly influential, really, in the direction of opera and in music in general. I don't want to gloss over the things about Wagner that are problematic. We should probably address them real quickly because, I mean, I think you, to, to fully appreciate him as a musician, you have to make peace with a certain number of things about his personality, right? Yeah, you know, he sort of considered himself, I would think, above typical human morality, what you might think uh, the moral code should be. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a known anti-Semite. Yes. So, and of course, we know how that panned out in um, in the in the 20th century with yeah, the he, philosophies of Hitler, yeah. and him becoming sort of a musical um, symbol for Nazism. Mm-hmm. He also, um, he, you know, he his, his personal life was a little bit fraught. Yeah, uh, oh, he's, <laughs> to say the least. Wait, yeah, that's actually an interesting story because it's very operatic in and of itself. Tell about his. Uh, personal life real quick. Oh, yeah. You must be talking about that love triangle between Wagner, uh, his good friend, the conductor, Hans von Bülow, and his and Hans von Bülow's wife, Cosima. Yes, exactly. Cosima, I believe, was Liszt's daughter, and he was married to Hans von Bülow and had an affair with Wagner. Uh, Hans refused to divorce her. They refused to stop seeing each other. They had, I think, three illegitimate children before Hans finally agreed to divorce her. And um, this this story, this shame followed him for years in his career. It it, it infiltrated not only early projects, but also the ring. I mean, the guy was not very likable in life. He, he was, I I hate to, um, 
I hate to um, liken him to currently unlikable personages in our world, but he was a person who didn't pay his bills. He left vendors unpaid. He left debts standing. He just thought he was above not only the the, the philosophical troubles of man, but the the more mundane troubles of man as well. Yeah, you know, in fact, if it weren't for his indebtedness, we might not have Defleagued or Hollander at right, all. Right. Well, speaking of cursed oceans, let's take a little break and then we'll come back and talk about the Flying Dutchman. The upcoming season at Utah Opera has something for everyone. From romance and tragedy to family-friendly comedy, plus a modern opera about Steve Jobs, the entrepreneur who changed life as we know it. Watch it happen live at Utah Opera. Tickets starting at just $30 are available now at utahopera.org. And we're back. Carol, I cut you off right at the good part. Could you jump back in? Yeah, before we get into the nitty-gritty of Die Fliegende Holländer, I'd love to talk about how we even got to that story. It's such a, a pop culture reference that even appears now. And I have found uh, instances of this character appearing in so many places, not just in an opera and not just in profound German literature, but in cartoons. Mm-hmm. And this is that character of the Flying Dutchman. Well, and in fact, uh, though in the opera, Flying Dutchman is the character Strictly speaking, the Flying Dutchman is this cursed ship. Exactly. Not a person. Right. Wagner, when he wrote his libretto, kind of tweaked that a bit. But I get ahead of myself. Yeah. Let's back up. So back in the 18th century, this was the era of trade when the uh, Europeans were um, discovering ways to um, broaden their influence. I mean, of course, we could go into the political implications of that. Not always positive, but let's just go with the facts. So, um, uh Holland became a power in the seas. Then they had this company, the Dutch East Indies Company, which governed trade throughout East Asia. And so one of the big things that happened was in um, the 1500s, I believe it was, a Portuguese sailor, Bartolomeus Diaz, found his way around the Cape of Good Hope. So it was the first person to kind of go around the southern tip of Africa. Mm -hmm. So this opened up these trade routes. And then the Dutch East Indies Company was one of those that kind of took advantage of that. They were trading, they were bringing spices, silks, um, all sorts of goods back from the Asia. And it was another way, it was a much easier way than an overland route to Asia and to India. Easy, easy, relatively speaking. Relatively I mean, this, speaking. this was a famous there be monsters part of the map. This sure. was a graveyard yeah, for ships. You know, yeah. It probably did have that picture drawn on it for a long time until yeah. they actually went around there. And in fact, the Cape of Good Hope has, um, I think I read that it had over 3,000 shipwrecks in yeah. the area around it, whether on the shore or under underwater. Yeah. So it was a notoriously stormy area. Not the most stormy crossing that you could find on the planet, but certainly a dangerous one. So there was a notorious sea captain for the Dutch East Indies Company by the name of Bernard Foca. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, noted particularly for his ability to travel these routes in an unusually fast amount of time. So he uh, had records set of his, you know, uh, transit from Europe to these various Asian ports. He was so known for this that people actually um, thought that he must have some sort of supernatural 
being behind him, that he was touched by the devil to be able to make these crossings in such uh, phenomenally short amounts of time. Just like the marksman in Defreshitz. Right. We, we're back to that, <laughs> yep. that supernatural thing. And so uh, he became kind of one of the seeds for this legend of uh, the Flying Dutchman and the captain of the Flying Dutchman. Sailors are historically very, very superstitious. Yeah. I'm sure it has something to do with the inherent dangers of being on the sh- on the seas. There's so many, you know, it was, it was an incredibly dangerous occupation. Very and lonely out there, too much time for idle thought. Exactly. Yeah. And also, you know, the weather phenomenons, mm-hmm. the um, being stuck in the doldrums, being in yeah. various um, light phenomenons, you would see things. And so there was this legend that kind of developed his, along the years of this ghost ship. And so the stories of these, this captain, Bernard Foca, the ghost ship, all of these things kind of um, stewed themselves into this legend of a a captain who um, helmed this mysterious ship. And um, the first instance of it actually being a written out story was in, I think, 1820-ish in this uh, magazine where they... A story was written about a a guy named Captain Vanderdecken, and there's a whole thing about him going around the Cape of Good Hope in the face of the storm and cursing the storm and saying, you know, should it take till eternity, I'm going to do this. And so then that captain was, in fact, you know, the devil comes along and says, all right, you're going to curse. You're going to vow that you're going to do it till eternity. We'll send you around the oceans for eternity. So he was just cursed to captain to pilot this ghost ship for all time. When we get to Heine, who was the poet who kind of uh, adapted the story a little bit, and Wagner, they've added in an element that he gets to come onto land every seven years to try to find redemption. And this is the classic trope of a woman has to die to save a man. <laughs> it's happened in opera before. It in, continues to happen in opera. Indeed it has. Indeed and it so has. his idea was he, he, came, he would come onto shore every seven years and he would seek someone who could be a woman who could be true to him till death. And once he found her, he would be, he was free. His, his curse would be broken. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, um, do you know much about the story in Wagner's actual life of the sea voyage he took? Oh right yeah. Let's circle back this? to the indebtedness and why this even has right, anything to do with he, this. Didn't he have an experience on a boat with a storm that inspired this? It's super meta. Yeah. Yeah. He had, he had to escape his creditors in Riga. He was connecting in Riga and he became indebted. So he had to, he did an overland escape with his then wife, Minna. Right. And then they were setting sail for London. They encountered a violent storm on the North Sea and they ended up having to take shelter in a harbor, which is exactly what happens at the beginning of the Flying Dutchman, Die Fliegende Hollander. Dahlen's ship of um, Norse seamen is has been in this running running forward of this storm and he they take shelter in this little fjord and then another ship takes shelter and it's the flying dutchman's ship so it kind of there's this phantom ship that appears i want to talk about the music a little bit because i think there's a lot in this piece that is wagner sort of becoming himself and i mentioned sort of the idea that music is becoming through composed now meaning that when we talk about number opera, we're talking about opera where every little bit can be taken out as an individual piece. It's very modular. Everything just slots right into place and there's gaps in between them. And, and there's it's a real... nice, neat little double bar exactly. at the end of things. But in Wagner, he wrote a lot of transitional music between all of the arias. I just did air quotes and all or of the solo Or sometimes he even moments. just 
ended the aria and dovetail it directly into the next moment. Exactly. Exactly. So when I talk about through compose, I'm talking about no longer having those discrete beginnings and ends for everything, but having the thing be one long continuous musical experience. This is the, this is a piece where that's starting to happen and is becoming really much a part of, very much a part of his voice. Also though, I know you wanted to talk about leitmotif and the way that he used music to not only capture character, but signal it, like help tell the story when words aren't. Yeah. You know, in this opera, he's just starting to experiment with this idea in his early stuff. uh, The idea of leitmotif becomes incredibly sophisticated and reaches its pinnacle in the ring cycle, that um, massive epic four hour series. Whole books are written about those motifs. Yeah. It's yeah. it's it's managed to give employment to musicologists for you know <laughs> decades, but in uh, Flying Dutchman there are light motifs and light right. motifs are just as you said musical ideas that are representing a character, an idea, a concept. Gets very very uh, elaborate later on, but in this case we have a few very obvious light motifs. We have um, the two that are most I think that if you know two light motifs in Flying Dutchman, you should know these two: the theme for the Dutchman and the theme for Santa. Mm-hmm. And I will sing them. The, and that's going to be very beautiful. I think, although you should sing the Flying Dutchman one because you've played it many a time as a third horn player. I have, I have played it there. I was telling Carol before we turned on the mics that there are moments in this opera where the third horn player is the only person in the entire building making sound. It's easily the most terrifying experience of my entire horn playing career, this piece. And I'm so scarred, in fact, that I refuse to sing. you got to do the singing, Carol. Oh, gosh. I'm disappointed in you. So it's just this. <laughs> Again. Bum, 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 bum. It's just a series of fifths. It's very, it's very uh, brass horn friendly. Very much. Just, yeah. you know, it's fifths are sort of the mm-hmm. basis of musical um, acoustics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so you'll hear that. Sometimes you'll hear it fast and stormy. Sometimes you'll hear it very quiet. Sometimes ominously. Sometimes sung. Yep. Sometimes just in the orchestra. Sometimes one lonely, terrified horn player. Exactly. Who is probably can't find enough beer after the show. Who has since given it up and now does podcasts. (laughs) So that's your first, you know, you'll hear that one throughout and that's, um, and then there's Senta. And Senta's, uh, we've already talked about how a woman has to die to uh, give redemption. And so in the sort of spirit of redemption, it almost has a chorale feel to it. It's a very Wagnerian. And uh, you'll hear that. Again, played in the orchestra. It's the last thing you hear in the overture. It's the last thing you hear in the opera. But it's also sung by the ladies. Um, so in uh, in the story, and we're not going to get in the weeds about the story, but one thing to know is the first act introduces you to the sailors, to Dolent, the the uh, sea captain, and to the character of the Hollander. In the second act, we meet Santa, Dolan's daughter, who is at this point now been promised to Hollander as a bride. The Hollander, in his years of perambulating the globe, has become fabulously wealthy. And so he's offering some of this uh, treasure to Dalent, who is uh, very easily swayed into sort of selling mm-hmm. his daughter off to this. That's a lot to unpack right there. But no, it's, I, I think it's pretty clearly human. <laughs> but Santa is um, back in the village with her um, girlfriends, and she is 
uh, she's just mooning about this picture, this storybook that she's been looking at. Some opera productions, it's a portrait on the wall. Mm-hmm. In ours, it's a book that has the portrait in it. And she's in love with this portrait. It's like a celebrity crush that she's had on this mysterious figure. And so um, if the Dutchman had to get on shore to find anybody, he found the perfect person because she's already in love with him. Yeah, she's been staring at his Dorian Gray painting forever. Right. And she tells the ballad of the Dutchman. So uh, if we didn't already know the story of the Flying Dutchman, she actually tells you in the second act. And so she sings that theme, that's the Dutchman's theme. But then she also sings her own redemption theme in the same aria. And so um, you'll hear that. And there's a, a great moment of very still music where the Dutchman and Senta are first meet. And they actually, it says in the stage directions, they just sort of stare at each other motionless. It's uh, Wagner's note. He's great at creating these timeless moments where, you know, the, the clock stops and we all sort of uh, buy into this moment. Tristan is a perfect example of right. that. Right. Um, but and and in the music where they're first seeing each other, we hear the Dutchman theme, the Santa theme, the Dutchman theme, the Santa theme. It's sort of driving home the point that they're connecting at that moment. Their souls are connecting, if you will. This this I, I'm glad you're talking about the themes and the the light motifs because I want to circle back to something that I, I think we started to approach earlier, which is about Wagner's philosophy with regards to music making, and it's particularly about music drama. Um, there's a, there's a German word for this concept, Carol, that you're going to have to help me with, but he was trying to promote this idea. Not a new one. It's a question that's been asked since the time of Mozart about music and words and all of the elements of a production having equal weight, having equal participation in the telling of the story. This was a concept that was super important to him and one that I think reached its apotheosis, if you will, in the ring. It, it's, right. it's present here in Dutchman exactly. too. Exactly. It's called Gesamtkunstwerk. Um, very often Germans uh, create terms by just... It, I don't mean to insult any Germans out there, but there are many compound words in the German language. It's very efficient and descriptive. And so we get gesamt, which means entire. Yeah. We get kunst, art, yeah. and werk, work. So we have entire artwork. So um, the music is, it's not just the music. It's not just the singing. It's all of the elements of the production coming together to form a bigger dramatic event. So it's the, the text, uh, the scenery, the direction, costumes, everything. the costumes, yeah. everything has to go with it. And in fact, Wagner took this to such an extent that he built his own theater purpose built for his concepts of art. And that was that famous uh, opera house in Bayreuth, mm-hmm. which still produces opera to this day. Mm-hmm. But Wagner was, as you say, and I'm, you know, not to go again way down, but if, you, if you're out there and you want to find out more, the person who really first started doing this was Christoph Willibald von Gluck. He's incredibly important in opera history for trying to bring us from Handel, where it's gods and goddesses and sort of removed, and it was about the singing, into what we got in Mozart, which was much more dramatically coherent and important. And then, of course, Wagner took it another step. Mm -hmm. It's a question composers have been asking, like I said, I said since the time of Mozart, but it was Salieri that wrote this piece, I think it's called, first the music, then the words or something, and then... then all right. Prima la musica, poi la parola. Exactly. And then the same question, music or words, follows us all the way into the 20th century with Strauss's Capriccio, where it's built around that same Right. That's sort the whole of, conversation. The whole conversation. Yeah. It's an amazing opera, but it's very talky because they're just discussing these philosophical things. And we have the character of the composer and yeah. the writer who kind of face off for the affections of this woman. And you can make a bigger 
uh, what's sort of looking for, like symbolic thing out yeah. of that, that, that they're vying for the attentions of the woman who maybe represents art. Yeah. So, so I guess what we're saying is it wasn't something that Wagner created out of whole cloth or owned as an artist, but it certainly was a, a, a sort of guiding principle for him. From yeah, and he came up on. with the catch words and yeah. the things that, uh, again, music historians glom onto and love to use. And I mean, they're great words. Gesamtkunstwerk is a fantastic is. word. And he maybe took the concept about as far as you can. Absolutely. Really. He yeah. even wrote his own libretti. I yeah. mean, very he, few composers would do that at this time. They right. always partnered with somebody else who specialized in that. But Wagner was like, nope, nope, I'm going to control every aspect. He did. So I'm going to build my theater. I'm going to write my words and I'm going to set them. And you can even go as far as to say that maybe he wasn't the strongest writer. There's a lot of hyperbole and hyperbolic language and um, it gets a little bit overwrought and mm -hmm. gothic. But again, that was part of German romantic opera to get very gothic. Yeah. Well, Carol, let's bring this story back to landlocked Utah and the Utah opera's production of The Flying Dutchman. Is, is there anything interesting and unique about this particular version of the story? I, I've been a part of a couple of different productions. They've been fairly traditional. Is there anything new and exciting about this one? Well, the last one we did was also on the tra traditional side mm -hmm. back in, I think, 2007, yeah. maybe. Uh, but this one is going to have some interesting elements. I mean, when you look at the set itself, it's actually just a kind of a wonderful box. It's like a megaphone. It's going to be great for balance because it's just a lot of hard wooden surfaces to just project great the sound for the out. Yeah. yeah. And it's meant to look it like is a kind big of big orchestra. It is a big orchestra. Yeah. But yeah. we also have singers who are yeah. uh, physically suited to this repertoire. Yep. Uh, so there's a lot in there. They're painted to look like weathered marine plywood kind of or, or boards but there is a practical boat so mm -hmm. you'll see an actual boat come on the the crew of the of the north ship is pulling the boat on shore but projections actually figure a lot into this most of the set is going to be created through the use of these screens and these projections that are uh so the the projection designer is credited as equally as anybody involved with the show in fact i saw today i was at the production studios and i saw the green screen set up they do are they're filming our particular Dutchman, Michael Kioldi, who's been a podcast guest, mm -hmm. uh, to interpolate his this filming on the green screen with the projections that already have been designed. This is a production that came from Opera San Jose. And it, so we just, but they use the characters, so we have to have our people filmed and put into the projection. Oh, so there's a little, uh, there's a little pre-production work that yeah, has so to be done. Yeah, so they were actually doing them. it today, yes. Oh, I, I went down and I was like, what is that? Oh, it's a green screen. So we were doing some green screen work at the production studios. I think we're well past the point where projection is a surprising part of opera. I mean, it's no, been happening no, enough mean, in the last couple of decades, but I, I don't think we've fully explored the full potential of that element. And I think just like motion cap in films, it's going to quickly become something that is as important as any piece of costume or any piece of uh, prop. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I want to mention just a little side note. There's this production of the Valkyries that's um, conceived by Yuval Sharon, who's a very visionary director mm -hmm. and um, artistic planner. And he's currently the uh, in charge of um, Detroit Opera, formerly Michigan Opera Theater. And they yep. just did this production of the Valkyrie Valkyries, which is just one act of Wagner's opera, but it's all green screened. And so it actually implants, it, it it imports the characters of the opera into almost a Tron-like world. So the Valkyries are not riding winged horses. They're actually riding, what do you, what do you call those? The light cycles? Light cycles. Yes. 
<laughs> okay, we've just dated ourselves horribly. No, we haven't. But, we've, we've just established our nerd cred. Well, okay, fine. So, I mean, you're seeing people like that who are trying to take, uh, and I just, I, it's only because it was pertinent to Wagner yeah. that I thought to mention it, but um, people who are really taking these ideas and and doing real filmmaking with it in you know, a way it's just, it's fascinating to see what people will come up with. Yeah. And I'm glad to see us using that in Utah. We, uh, you know, it's, it's just a new vision of it for our audience. If there's any, so if there's any part of you in the audience that feels like I already saw this back in 2007, it's really not true. It's, no, it's going to be a different. very different experience. Um, 2007, which incidentally was coincident with the end of my horn playing career, but we've been through that already. <laughs> but um, so make sure you check this out if you're in Salt Lake City, because it's not going to be the same kind of experience you had before. Before we go, Carol, uh, you mentioned Michael, and he's a former podcast guest. Talk about the cast in general, because I think there are some real audience favorites in this group. Absolutely. Uh, we also have uh, we have Michael, who's been with Utah Opera a number of times and has been a great uh, guest for us. We also had um, two years ago, we had Wendy Bryn Harmer as a guest. She was doing La Voix Men, The Human Voice, and she was delightful. Uh, but her original gig that fall was meant to be Flying Dutchman as right. the character of Senta. So we're finally able, this is one of the few remaining things that got postponed by pandemic. So those are our two leads. Then we have as Dolland, and I'm going to try not to butcher his name, this amazing Icelandic bass who's done many a Wagner role, Kristin Zygmundsen. Uh, he is a giant Viking of a man and it's just, um, with, with a voice to match. Yeah. We have, uh, debut artists with us as well. Christine is new to us as is Dominic Armstrong as the Steuermann and a wonderful young tenor, Rob Staley as Eric, the rival for, I haven't even mentioned Eric. He's a hunter who is the land bound rival for Senta's affections. And, and Tishina Vaughn as uh, Mary, who is one of the friends of Santa. And Ari Pelto, who's a frequent Utah opera collaborator, is back on the podium, right? Right. And Andreas Hager is new to us, and he is our director. Well, clearly this production of The Flying Dutchman is not to be missed. Go to utahopera.org for details. Before we sign off, Carol, any last words on this? Well, I want to bring it back to our community. You know, not everyone who's listening is from Utah, but those of you who live in Utah know that Halloween is a huge deal here. So. This is an early start to your Halloween celebrations with this great ghost story and this oceanic journey as well. And you get to go to the Capitol Theater, which also has its resident ghost. So it's a great Halloween it's, event. It's why we're called what we're called. So be sure to visit Utah Symphony and most importantly now, utahopera.org for information about this and all upcoming performances. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcast. This helps us get new listeners. Until next time, we're glad to be back. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>